0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: One day, I was with a friend, and I was like, something's changing. I can feel something really intense changing. And she and I were smoking weed in the middle of a sunny summer day in L.A., And we were in her backyard of the house that she inherited from her grandparents. And it was so overgrown. And there's like decades of junk in the backyard and we're clearing out the backyard. And I'm like being of service, helping my friend. And my phone rings and I look at my phone and I have this sense of dread just drop in my stomach. And I have all my intuition volume turned way up. And I was like, something really bad is happening right now. And I looked at my friend and I said, I don't want to answer this phone call. And she's standing there with two glasses of lemonade in her hand that she had just made for us. And she was like, her eyes filled with tears. And she said, something bad just happened, didn't it? And I said, yeah. And she said, you need to answer that call. And I answered the call and, I, and it was on speakerphone. And I said, hey. And it was one of my clients. And she was this model. And, and she said, something bad happened, Ben. Something really, really bad happened. I have to give you some really, really bad news.
0: Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins show. If you are new to this podcast, I interview individuals who've gone above and beyond to be the change that they want to see in the world. They share their story behind the story. And what becomes clear is how they've always been on their path. And it's important to hear these types of stories as often as possible because it reminds us that we are also on our path, whether we realize it or not. And just knowing that makes life a little easier to navigate. It allows us to live with a little more intention and purpose, and it reminds us of what's most important whenever we find ourselves at a crossroads, where one choice is to sell our soul for a buck, and the other is to do what's in our heart. And after hearing this show, my hope is that you will be inspired to follow your heart. So this week, I'm speaking with author, speaker, and meditation thought leader, Mr. Ben Decker. Ben grew up as a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. He also began meditating and traveling the world on spiritual pilgrimages and mission trips. And then he decided to enter the priesthood as a teenager. But a battle with addiction and depression caused him to change his mind and search for a different type of career. He ended up doing a 180 by going to Los Angeles and becoming a publicist. And after rising up through the ranks and becoming one of Hollywood's biggest publicists, particularly for Playboy bunnies, Ben had a dear friend die by suicide, and he felt somewhat complicit in his friend's unhappiness and depression. So he decided to leave his prolific career in PR, and he went back to his roots by starting his own field of study, which he called Collaborative Religion. Ben then helped to open a religiously pluralistic spiritual center in Venice Beach, California called Full Circle, which is where he and I first crossed paths because I rented that space to help host one of my inspirational variety shows that I was doing at the time called The Shine. And Ben went on to become a prolific teacher and author of books on meditation. He's now written four books, most recently publishing Modern Spirituality, A Guide to the Heart of Mindfulness, Meditation, and the Art of Healing, which became a bestseller. and he's also the host of the Modern Spirituality Podcast. And as always, we dive deep into the backstory of how Ben came to be the author and teacher that he is today. And what's notable about almost all of my episodes was that there was always a moment where the guests decided to take a big leap of faith in the direction of what they identified at the time as their purpose— Sometimes they were motivated by curiosity, other times they were motivated by pain. Ben's case was more of the latter. So if you're on the fence about making a switch in your path to something that feels more aligned with where you currently are, I think you're going to find this episode very inspiring. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Mr. Ben Decker. Benjamin Decker, it's an honor, it's a pleasure having you (laughs) on the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to not only diving into the backstory, your origin story, if you will, your life, but also just sharing you with my audience because you're someone who I have a, probably a handful of people in my life, my personal life who I see. And every time I see them, it lights me up. It inspires me. And I consider you to be one of those handful of people who has that effect. When I see you, and we always give each other a nice warm hug, embrace. And uh, yeah, it's just all love, man. And and we don't even really know each other like that, but it's just, you know, there's that attraction, that vibe, I'm vibrating at the same frequency. So it's, right. it's an honor for me to have you on this show.
1: Yeah. I mean, the honor's all mine. And, you know, you're the one that lights me up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to be here. I'm trying to remember where did we
0: first, do you remember our first interaction? Was it at or, or around? Unplug
1: was it, oh no full circle full circle full circle right the full circle yeah days. I remember we had just opened full circle and mm-hmm. I was doing a weekly Sunday church service that's right and that's and right they asked me they said will you help plan we're gonna do an evening event and I was like oh man, I already put so much into this morning event. Like, are you about to make me do extra work? No, I'm just kidding. But they said, there's this guy, he's an amazing meditation teacher and you've got to meet him. His name is Light. Mm-hmm. And so I remember them saying that your name was Light. I specifically remember that moment. And that's where we met. We met at Full Circle when we were going to host you for The Shine. That's right. I, think, I don't know if we actually did it there. Cause yeah, I think we did, we it, did it, it there our, a few like... times. We did that oh, a few okay. times. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was those was, those I, were
0: the good old days, man. That
1: was those awesome. really were the good old days, you know. It's like it felt, you know, really challenging to maintain full circle. It was a really expensive place for us to maintain, but it was an amazing community and dream. And I also remember you hosted something for we were like one of the thousand spiritual staff, yeah, Deepak, yeah. and I think it was Gabrielle Bernstein co-hosted like a global thing. And you were our local person. And I was like, okay, meanwhile, I'm a meditation teacher. I could be doing this. Okay, whatever. We'll have this guest come in.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then I remember you saying, or someone telling me that you'd done TM, you'd done all the meditations, you'd done all, you were exposed to everything. And I never knew anyone who grew up like that. So let's pivot there. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about your childhood. Because that is interesting. And I think an out, you're an outlier in that regard, in that you grew up as a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. So I don't know what that means exactly. Maybe you can explain that. And then, mm-hmm. and then, how did that lead to an exposure to those other more Eastern practices?
1: Yeah, my ancestors founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, which is best known for its scripture. They use the King James Version of the Bible, but then they also have a book called the Book of Mormon that the founder essentially channeled. We usually say translated, he translated it. And the experience growing up in that atmosphere, we were Christian and we believed we were Christian and we were Christian and it was all about Jesus. But every Christian I knew was like, dude, you're not Christian. Mormons are not Christian. That community is not Christian. But I will say like internally, everything was about Jesus. So we sure felt like we were Christian. But there were some key esoteric nuances that made it different than evangelical Christianity. And that included the receptivity to other truths outside of the religion. And so, it's actually very common for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to practice meditation, to practice yoga. My grandparents, on my mother's side, had a familiarity and an interest and an appreciation for the Eastern traditions. They lived in Japan for a little while. And my mother's first name, her given name is Karma. So just the fact that her name was Karma invited a lot of really interesting conversations and questions and even gifts. People were like gifting her books about karma. Anytime someone saw the word karma on something, they bought it and they gave it to her as a gift. So, she's literally got like a collection of like a cookie jar that say karma's cookies of a sign that says, I saw that karma. Karma's a bitch, but only if you are. Like there's all kinds of stickers and pins and all kinds of stuff like that. And a lot of Buddhist and Hindu Vedic literature on the bookshelf. So, my parents were very religious and very committed to the LDS church. And within that context there's a teaching of the practice of silence, but we don't call it mindfulness. We don't call it meditation. We call it pondering. And pondering is when you sit with one concept. And so, it's different than like a Vedic mantra-based meditation in that it is more about the meaning of the concept versus the use of the mantra as a sound. But then stillness and silence is a huge practice. And we have temples. We have church buildings where the normal church services happen every week. And that's where you have your youth group and Sunday school and sacrament meetings and choir practice and all of that. And then there are temples, which are separate. There's like maybe 7,000 church buildings around the world. And then there's like 200 temples around the world. And the temples are where special ceremonial ordinances take place that not even every member of the church ever goes into a temple. It's where more advanced ceremonies take place. And so, I was raised to prepare to go to the temple. And so, by age, I want to say like 14, I was performing these ordinances in the temples. And in order to perform them and in order to be there, a practice of reverence, we always called it reverence, but the way that we define sort of like a spiritual definition of mindfulness is how we use the word reverence. So it's a deep respect, a quietness, an openness, a receptivity. A lot of times I think mindfulness is like about the physical senses and it becomes like a little more clinical. That's not really what reverence is. Reverence is more the spiritual presence within the temple space, within the sacred space. Mm -hmm. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. If I was your childhood friend, right?
0: 10, mm-hmm. 12 years old, I wanted to come and spend a couple of days at your house. Uh-huh. What would I have experienced that would be different from being in like a normal American household? Mm-hmm. What would well, I have seen in your house
1: or heard? Well, a couple things are what you wouldn't have seen or heard. And so mm-hmm. some of the things that you wouldn't have seen or heard is my parents never use any kind of profanity. It's like really, really rare. You know, they're not like perfect about it, but it's like really rare for profanity no smoking, no drinking, alcohol, no coffee, strict on those things, like definitely zero alcohol. I've never once ever seen alcohol in my parents' home, very strict on alcohol, very strict on coffee. Those things were never in the home. Definitely no smoking in or around the home. And so, those are the things you would not have seen. But a couple of things that you would have seen is lots of pictures of Jesus everywhere lots of pictures of temples. So I mentioned that there are these temples all over the world. They're kind of like these almost like futuristic elven, like a Lord of the Rings elf temple palaces all over the world. They're gorgeous. If you were to Google like LDS temple or Mormon temple, they're exquisite and they're all very different. So they're all very much like unique architectural expressions. And so we have a, a lot of pictures of temples around the home. Statues of Jesus, pictures of Jesus, looking all different kinds of ways, different versions of Jesus. And also, every morning, we would have family prayer. And so, every morning upon waking up, usually before we shower or have breakfast or anything like that, we all meet in the family room and we kneel in a circle. And one of us says a a prayer for the day. They're not memorized prayers. There's a formula to them, but they all have to be, you have to take a deep breath and become very present and pray something from the present moment, from the heart, nothing memorized, nothing repetitive, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's every morning before breakfast. And then another prayer before every single meal. And it's like a true blue family prayer, not like take a moment, close our eyes, so grateful for this food. Mm -hmm, Yep. And eat it. No, like literally everyone sits down, folds our arms, bows our head, not one bite of food. You may not have one bite of food until someone blessed that meal, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you're my friend, age 12, you're at my house and the pizza just got delivered and you want to like open that box and (laughs) grab a bite of pizza, you better check yourself because we better be standing in a circle around the Island in the kitchen folding our arms, bowing our heads, saying a blessing over that pizza before one bite goes into your body. So, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we say those prayers. And then in the evening, there's a little bit of a longer family prayer. So, similar to the morning family prayer, but it's a longer experience. And sometimes we would even sing a song. Every night, we would read from the scriptures. We would read from the Bible and from the Book of Mormon. and we would ponder on the message in the writing. So we would read the scriptures, and then we would sit in silence. We would meditate. We would usually start by singing a song. Then we would talk a little bit and catch up with everyone about the day. And then we would read from the scriptures. And then we would sit in silence. And then we would say our evening prayer. And that evening prayer, that whole moment, that whole little mini ceremony is every single night. And it's after dinner. And It's not immediately after dinner. It's like dinner and then TV, play around, catch up on homework, blah blah blah. And then this last ceremony is right before bed. So after we say that last prayer, you go straight to bed. So
0: were you bought in on all of this? Were you a devotee, or were you like the rebellious? You're getting drunk and
1: high before you come in from school and then you're <laughs> pretending like this kind of like cool with you? kind of both. I think part of me. From a really young age, like I joined the priesthood when I was 12. Mm-hmm. So, it wasn't exactly getting drunk and high at age 12. But mm-hmm. I, I joined the priesthood at age 12. I was performing these very elaborate rituals, purifying my ancestors, baptisms and rituals for my dead ancestors one at a time in the temple. So, wearing ceremonial garb, performing these rituals for individuals who were dead, like mm-hmm. very elaborate rituals in these palaces. You go in to this temple, which looks and feels like a palace, wearing your suit and tie. You go into the changing room and you change into the ceremonial garb and you never wear the ceremonial garb outside of the building. No one ever sees it. So it's all very much like you're in an alternate world because it's all your friends from the community, but everyone's like wearing all white and you're in this like alternate universe and it's this palace and we're doing these like special rituals and then you change and it's all it's like it's like an altered state you go into so because of all of that and how elaborate it all was i did have a lot of deep sincere connection to it and there's a part of me that was very genuinely bought in and from a young age i had a lot of supernatural experiences and the church and the community always validated the supernatural experiences and helped me cultivate those spiritual gifts so I had like a connection to the spirit world through the context of all of that. And so it was, it was very authentic for me in a lot of ways. Of course, then as a teenager, I became rebellious and went through puberty and had my like sexual awakening and everything and did explore alcohol and drugs. But really, that was more later into my 20s, to be honest. That was a little bit later. But I definitely embodied almost like a split personality where part of me was very, very committed and another part of me was really questioning all of it, really seeking outside of the church for truth. How, how, do how
0: does the church feel about gays?
1: <laughs> they like to think that they're very loving and welcoming. <laughs> mm. But the thing is, You can't get married. You can't have a same-sex marriage within the church. And the rule is if you're gay, you like can be gay, but you can't ever act on it. So you can never have sex. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that, right? So yeah, it's kind of a tricky one. So that was really the source of my feeling of being unwelcome or needing to seek outside the church. It wasn't really the spirituality because I actually felt really connected to the spirituality. And I really liked the lineage that I had inherited. And yes, my ancestors started the religion 200 years ago, but all the founders of the religion were high-level Freemasons. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the temple rituals and everything are similar to some of the higher-level Freemason ceremonial rituals. And so there's a lineage that goes back further than 200 years through the Masonic lineage. And so there are aspects within it that always deeply resonated. But when you start to realize that the way you love is never going to be accepted, there's no path for you. You have to leave Mm -hmm. if you're going to survive. Having had that background,
0: now you're like a teenager, right? Or maybe late teens, you're thinking about life beyond the church Mm -hmm. or being at home. What was your idea of success or where you wanted to... End up. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the All Access Pass if you go to TheHappinessInsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, TheHappinessInsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly All Access Pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and master classes, such as my 108 day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's the happinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode.
1: My parents kept me really busy. I was like in gymnastics and karate, and I had a voice coach for years. And so I was like a singer. I was in a number of different choirs. I was in a punk rock band for a little while. I played violin. I was very busy with a lot of extracurricular activities. And so for me, in those extracurricular activities, they have their vision of success. So when I was playing violin, the violin teacher had this vision for me to go be this like concert violinist. Uh, When I was singing, my vocal coach had this vision for me of becoming this like Grammy winning singer. When I was in the choir and these like community choruses that were like hard to get into, like you had to audition and be like a real singer to get into and you got paid to be in the choir and stuff like that. Those choirs had their own vision of success where you would become this amazing professional choral performer as an adult. And acting, I was in acting classes and I was in a lot of plays and stuff like that. So a lot of the success was around performances, being an actor, becoming a star, the entertainment industry, very public facing. So a lot of that was the dream. Around age 16, I had a lot of depression and I was experiencing suicidal ideation and a lot of it was related to my sexuality. And that was when I started to explore meditation, Reiki, hypnotherapy, independently from my family. So that's when the exploration sort of began its like individuation process for me. And as a part of all of that, I never thought that would ever have anything to do with my career because I was about to go become a star. I was going to go become an actor or a singer or both. I had an agent, I had a modeling agent, I was auditioning all over the place. Had a couple of gigs here and there.
0: So the suicidal ideation, depression, was that linked to that trauma that you said you experienced as a child? Was there I some kind so. of sexual abuse or something that you Yeah, there was
1: definitely a number of sexual abuse experiences. I had... As a young child, I think that when you have a big family, I've got five brothers. And when there's a lot of kids around, my older brothers were close in age, my younger brothers were close in age. And I I was a little bit of a an outlier age-wise. I was sort of a couple of years apart from the older brothers and the younger brothers. So, it was like dad would take the older brothers to football. Mom would take the younger brothers to wherever she was taking them. And then A babysitter or a friend from church, or someone would take me to violin or take me to drama practice or whatever. And so I had just turned five years old. I was playing a shepherd in a church play. And one of the church leaders who drove me from my parents' house to the church to be in this play during intermission, well, first of all, he molested me on the drive in the car on the way in. And then during intermission, he molested me again. And then when he drove me home, he molested me again. And then every time I saw him for that period of time for the next year, he molested me again. And so, there was a feeling of worthlessness. And I didn't have a language for it at the time, but what amounts to objectification, like not being a living being, but being an object. And I think that contributed a lot to the suicidal ideation. Also, mm-hmm. I had already like come out to my parents before that even happened. I already told my parents that I like had this big crush on this guy and this girl, actually, a guy and a girl. I was like, I is amazing. And so was Evan. I think I'm in love with both of them. And that was before I was molested. But the combination of all of that internalized pain from the trauma, plus being in a culture that did not have a long-term path for me made it feel like my life didn't matter and me growing old didn't matter and me getting married and having a family and and building a long-term life didn't matter. And I think that's where the suicidal ideation really came from. Mm-hmm.
0: And then is this when you embarked on those pilgrimages and the mission trips or was that later?
1: I think, you know, I went on like many local staycation style pilgrimages around age 16 and 17 and 18. I became a Reiki master when I was 16. I did my first yoga teacher training when I was 18. I became a hypnotherapist, a certified hypnotherapist when I was 18. Your parents obviously had
0: means, right? Because you're doing all these trainings and workshops and those all cost a lot of money. They
1: were better than some, but not exactly rich. You know, you've got six kids in the house. You got to have like major money for that to be like a rich situation. And we weren't, my parents worked really hard and we were really fortunate in a lot of different ways. But these trainings I'm referring to, I had to pay for. When I was in Ohio, you can work as young as age 12. It's like legal for you to have a job at age 12. And on my 12th birthday, I got a job working at the grocery store and I bagged groceries. I collect grocery carts. I cleaned the bathrooms. I never quite got the promotion to being a cashier, but I did take the trash. I, I worked and I worked from 445 in the morning on Saturdays. That's when my shift started until noon. And that was like my major shift each week. It was my longest shift each week was Saturdays from 445 in the morning till noon. My parents dropped me off and picked me up. And the money that I made from that originally was going to me taking guitar lessons at the mall that was near the grocery store. And so I would walk to the mall Take my guitar lesson. And at the mall, there was this like new age shop that sold like sage and crystals and candles. Then there was, of course, the bookshop. And the bookshop had all these Kama Sutra, which I really liked, you know, Kama Sutra and and Yoga and the Dao De Ching and all kinds of spiritual books and everything. So after a while, I wasn't really getting the hang of the guitar. The guitar teacher, I didn't really like him. One of my friends started to take guitar lessons from the same guitar teacher, and he didn't like him either. So, I kind of didn't tell my parents that I wasn't taking guitar anymore. And I started to go meet with this psychic at this little new age shop. And I started to sort of ask her questions and learn about different things. And she was offering a Reiki training at Mm. the local library. And the local library was walking distance from the school. And so, I started to do that and no one signed up for the Reiki training. So, I was actually the only one in the Reiki training. So yes, my parents did well. And so every penny that I made, I was able to spend on myself. So they weren't really...
0: Yeah, they would have been impressed by your work ethic. Did all your brothers have this kind of work ethic? Getting up at four o'clock in the morning
1: to go work a (laughs) seven-hour shift at the grocery
0: store, cleaning bathrooms?
1: I think so. I feel like my dad was very much like all about getting work done, being productive He had a home building company. We always went to work with him and he put us to work and he worked too. He owned the company, but if he was there and something needed to be done and it needed to be done now, he would just do it. He was skilled Mm -hmm. and able to do it himself. There were people he would subcontract out to take care of the major things, but he was always like, if there was a bunch of sawdust all over the place and he wanted to tour the place, he would get a broom. He would sweep up the sawdust. If there was something, a framing issue, he would take a hammer and frame something up. He would use the saw. And and so we were always involved even way before age 12 when I got my first real job at a grocery store, you know. And then I worked at the grocery store for a few years. uh, And then I worked for my dad's company for like, I don't know, like $5 an hour or something like that. You know, all of us had jobs. I worked as a caddy at a golf course, which that I hated carrying golf clubs around and just standing there waiting for these like drunk old white men to like hit a ball and then walk to the next thing. Hated that. Hated it. That was not for me. But by age 16, you could work at retail. So I worked at Abercrombie Kids from age 16 all the way to age 18. I turned 18 at the very beginning of my senior year in high school and got a job at Abercrombie and Fitch because when you're 18, you can work at Fitch.
0: Oh yeah, and I'm I also you, at you m- still can hear anything after working at Abercrombie? <laughs> it's <just a> loud. <laughs> <Yeah. air. laughs>
1: no, I have no hearing. Uh, hearing uh, the sense of smell completely burned. Yeah, your out smell from, is completely gone <laughs> from all the cologne. Oh, uh, but I also worked at three different restaurants at different times, and so there were times where I had like three different jobs mm-hmm. at once. You know, I would go from Abercrombie to the restaurant, like do an afternoon shift at Abercrombie have like an hour break then get over to my job at, at Maggiano's. <laughs> if you know that chain, I worked at Maggiano's in Cincinnati, Ohio, worked at a Brazilian Trascaria, worked at a Cajun restaurant. So I think all of us, all my brothers, we I think we all, my parents did well enough to make sure we had everything that we need and they would pay for some things like my acting classes and vocal coaching and stuff like that. But when it came to anything else that we really wanted, like the guitar lessons, it didn't fall into the same category as piano or violin for them. Mm. So they paid for piano, they paid for violin, but they didn't pay for guitar. Mm. They paid for what they wanted to pay for or what they Mm. could pay for in those moments. And I think the same was true for my brothers. So I think we were all very entrepreneurial also, like always like mowing people's lawns for money or whatever. Right.
0: So this idea of Los Angeles was implanted into your psyche early on when you saw something on television about the City of Angels. Right. How do we get to Los Angeles then? From this point, you're working in all these restaurants.
1: Yeah, I had like this interesting combination of in the acting and performance world, they always said you go to LA or New York. New York mm-hmm. is a lot harder. LA is more comfortable. And I was like, okay, that's me. I like better. <laughs> the beach and the mountains and everything that all resonated more. So, one part of it was for the entertainment industry. One part was for this spiritual part of me that was like, wow, angels, like there's something spiritual about this place. And then when I was working at the restaurant, especially around age 16, now I'm not a little kid. I'm like, I look older than I am. I'm cute. I'm like this athletic, cute teen now. And people want to know my sexuality everyone knew I was like bi or gay or whatever. And it was hard in a really conservative community. But working at the restaurants, I felt really like accepted and welcomed. And they kept saying, you've got to go to LA. LA is a place where anywhere you go, you can really be accepted. And so, there was like these three things that were like, LA is going to be a safe place for you. And as soon as I graduated high school, I went to college in Idaho at the Brigham Young University, Idaho campus, which is started by one of my ancestors, Brigham Young, and it's the church's official university, and Mm -hmm. I was extremely depressed, and... I was like a MySpace influencer (laughs) at the time. (laughs) And so I just used all my modeling photos to try to get meetings and everything in LA. And once I got a couple meetings in LA, I saved up about, I want to say like $600 and I just got out of there. And I just like made my way to LA. One day I just told my brother, I was like, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And Mm. We didn't even tell my parents for at least a month after that, that I had dropped. I had abandoned my classes. I abandoned university and I moved to LA and I couch surfed and I didn't care. I was like, I can't be in that religious environment that doesn't want me there. I need to find my people. And I was auditioning like crazy and I had a lot of anxiety. And when you go from being the cutest little boy in Mormon land over here to like actual LA where you're actually auditioning for real roles, you're not so cute anymore. Like that's nice that you're cute in your little small town. That's nice that you're talented in your cute little small town. This is LA now. You're not cute. You were a 10 where you're from. You're like a four here. You were in acting where you're from, you're like, you like don't even rank here, you know. And so anxiety, depression, major intensity increased dramatically once I got to LA and eventually pivoted out of acting and into PR. I was really good at social media, and it was at the very beginning of social media. So I was helping create official MySpace accounts. That's how long ago this was for clients and everything at a major PR firm. And so I got really good at PR, developed a lot of contacts, and got a better offer at a smaller PR firm. Worked for a couple of major studios, got a job at a smaller PR firm, where the founder of that PR firm really taught me what was up, really cultivated my abilities, really cultivated my skills. And and eventually, I outgrew that position and started my own firm. Now, at this point, are you still praying over your meals and
0: not drinking <laughs> and don't know what's, what's your lifestyle like these days?
1: I think to manage the anxiety and depression, I stopped going to church Mm -hmm. around that time, around age 19. I went maybe like once a month instead of every single Sunday and every single Wednesday because I just felt so much anxiety being there, feeling judged, feeling not accepted. And so even though I had moved to Los Angeles, I was still trying to go to church, still trying to have that community. It wasn't working. And in order to manage the anxiety, I just stopped going. and. I really didn't drink until I was 21 and I had already been doing PR and I was like 19 and 20 doing PR with a fake ID to even get into my own client's events. And my 21st birthday was like a key moment because I threw myself a party. And it was like when all these reality shows were happening, Keeping Up With The Kardashians was like a brand new show. The Hills was like at its peak popularity, all these reality shows taking place in that community of Hollywood elite or semi-elite or wannabe elite. And I threw myself a red carpet charity birthday event at a nightclub, Le Do. Le Do is the name of the nightclub and it was like hot stuff at the time. It was like the hottest club. And Mm -hmm. I worked it out when I knew The Hills was going to be filming that night. And I got the Kardashians to come and it was like, it meant nothing that the Kardashians were there. It meant nothing like today. It would be like, wow, good job. But at the time it was so early in their career that it was like season one of keeping up with the Kardashians, you know, it was like, no one cared. And they did film the Hills. And so it was like peak Hollywood energy for me at that time. And I was like, going to get on the hills. I was going to go be a reality star. I was going to make it happen. I was going to fulfill my dreams by being a publicist and being a public figure. And at that time, I did start to drink. And it was more like I had an occasional binge drinking moment. I wasn't drinking regularly. I wasn't drinking daily. I almost never even bought alcohol, but I was doing PR for... You know, one by one, I got better and better clients, bigger and bigger clients, bigger and bigger contracts. And before you know it, I'm at the Playboy Mansion and I'm on Playboy Radio and I'm booking guests for Playboy Radio and staging fake paparazzi appearances with Playboy Playmates and reality stars and all that kind of stuff. And it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. It was like peak energy, that community. I didn't know how fake it was because I was ignorant to it but I felt really loved and really accepted and really celebrated at that time in my life. And so I did cocaine and I did ecstasy and I drank cocktails at at all these parties and and I had sex with people that I had just met and you know I was living the lifestyle for a hot minute there. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't exactly praying over all my meals and avoiding all the things But You also had a conscience.
0: I saw in a clip you talked about how you would try to tell some of these playmates who were being coerced into doing things. You don't really have to go through with that if you don't want to, right? Did you start to develop that reputation as this PR person with a conscience?
1: Everyone knew I was Mormon. And they were like, oh, dude, the Mormon who does PR for Playboy. Oh, geez. Is he like infiltrating Playboy to try to destroy the company? Is he like a Mormon plant to try to like, shut down the whole industry? Especially since there were times when I was on photo shoots with my clients who were visibly uncomfortable, who wanted to drink. I remember one client wanted to put a straw in a bottle of wine to get drunk to feel comfortable posing nude. And I said, you really don't need to do this. And they were like, what? And she put her clothes on and we left. So I definitely had a conscience because remember, I had already been meditating. Mm -hmm. So and I already had a personal life using hypnotherapy and using meditation. And it was about age and Reiki. And it was about age 20 when I got my transcendental meditation mantra. So it was all right at that time when I was already in TM. And having a practice and occasionally visiting the Self-Realization Fellowship. There was a temple in Hollywood and a temple in the Palisades. So, I was definitely exploring, but I have to say, I was not exactly bringing friends to those things. I definitely wasn't taking pictures there. I definitely wasn't talking about it to anyone. It was a deeply intimate, personal thing. And so, there was this part of me that was like, for the self-realization of this woman, you sometimes need an intervention. You sometimes need an angelic being or someone to say, you have permission to leave this situation. And I had this sort of like thought that in all these different circumstances, when someone was doing something that they didn't want to do and I had authority, more often than not, I was playing devil's advocate. I was like, you could go this way, but there's a lot of options, you know, even if something's hard for a little while. You do land on your feet and things do work out. And it didn't make me a very effective PR person for someone who wanted to be like a playmate of the year.
0: So when did everything come to a head then, transitioning out of PR to what you're ultimately doing now?
1: Well, every red carpet event chipped away at my spirit. Every nightclub experience weighed on me more heavily. And the relationships that I had, the intimate relationships I had at that time, boyfriends and girlfriends were just so chaotic. And I did things that I regret and we were drinking and partying and it was just such a disaster. It was like everything was exactly what you see on like a Bravo reality show that you don't want in your life. All of those exact things that you don't want, I had. Mm-hmm. And the biggest moment, the moment that really drew things to a head, some of it was gradual because I I was really trying to find meditation centers and there weren't really many or any that were outside of a religious community in LA. So that was a challenging thing. I would go to the Dharma Center and and Inside LA and a couple other places here and there that were open. I was feeling unfulfilled, unfulfilled. I wasn't really finding what I wanted. And I've heard about this spiritual teacher who was running for office and it was Marianne Williamson. And I had no clue who she was. I had never heard her name that I was aware of, but I actually did read A Course in Miracles when I was 10 years old. So, I I must have had some kind of like introduction to her in order for me to even like materialize that book in my life. But I remember sitting on the floor in a yoga studio and she was talking about her campaign for Congress and she talked about. David and Goliath and the capstone of the pyramid of Egypt (laughs) and getting money out of politics. And I was like, damn, this is an interesting person. And I started to have this thought like, wow, I could actually represent people like that. I could represent people who are more like me, more like authentically like me, like this person. And so, I started to support her campaign. I did a lot of fundraisers for her campaign, got really, really, really hands-on. About that time, we opened full circle and I was still doing PR and I opened full circle and I'm like, whoa, this is my passion. This is amazing. Like all these things that I've been doing for years, someone cares about. There's other Mm. people who even care about meditating, who are even interested in any of this. Like, holy crap. I had no clue this even existed. And not long after we opened full circle, there was a couple of other things that happened. Like I I had found an anti-human trafficking organization. When I was 21, I raised a bunch of money for the anti-human trafficking organization, was, stayed in touch with that whole field of work. But actually, about the time of Marianne Williamson coming into my life, I had gotten really involved, took a full-time position at an anti-human trafficking organization while I still had my PR firm. And so just like always, I had multiple jobs at once, just like always, I was busy, You know, up at four in the morning, just like always. And there was a, a vortex of things that happened where the anti-human trafficking work, I started to realize like the hypersexualization in and culture was actually contributing to something negatively in the collective psyche that mm. was like creating and perpetuating and allowing for sex trafficking to happen from like a metaphysical perspective. Then I was like, wow, I can't do PR for this industry anymore. It's not about the women or the individuals. It was more about this industry. I was like, wow, I I have to step away from that. And I started to feel myself pull away from that, embrace the charity work, deepen my connection to meditation, open myself up to sharing meditation with other people. And I had already been a yoga instructor for for years by then. I had been certified for years. I hadn't been teaching for years, but I, I hadn't hardly taught anything, but I had already become a yoga instructor by then. And one day... I was with a friend and I was like, something's changing. I can feel something really intense changing. And she and I were smoking weed in the middle of a sunny summer day in LA. And we were in her backyard of the house that she inherited from her grandparents. And it was so overgrown. And there's like decades of junk in the backyard and we're clearing out the backyard. And I'm like being of service, helping my friend and my phone rings And I look at my phone and I have this sense of dread just drop in my stomach. And I have all my intuition volume turned way up. And I was like, something really bad is happening right now. And I looked at my friend and I said, I don't want to answer this phone call. And she's standing there with two glasses of lemonade in her hand that she had just made for us. And she was like, her eyes filled with tears. And she said, something bad just happened, didn't it? And I said, yeah. And she said, you need to answer that call. And I answered the call and and it was on speakerphone. And I said, hey, and it was one of my clients. And she was this model and and she said, something bad happened, Ben. Something really, really bad happened. I have to give you some really, really bad news. Okay. Can you hear some very bad news right now? And she had just filed for divorce and her husband slash soon to be ex-husband had just died by suicide that morning. He went to a shooting range in the valley. He struggled with depression for a very long time. And there were some really close calls over the years. But he went to a shooting range and shot himself in the head Mm. at a public shooting range. And we talked about it. And I said, look, the public is going to be asking about this. I'm so sorry. Let me know how I can help. And she said, yeah, please help. Please help like manage the public statements and stuff. And I said, okay, my honor, I'm happy to help. And the reality of that started to settle in once some of the other friends, some members of the community started to tip off the media. And the news found out, and TMZ found out, and all these different outlets found out. And cut to two days later, I'm in the car on the way to my friend's funeral. His parents didn't come to it. It was just such very intense energy. It was very chaotic and very crazy. And all of the friends, all of our mutual friends were like blaming each other. And and it was so negative and harsh and angry and no one knew how to manage it. And it was just horrible. Just like the scariest, most horrible, traumatizing thing. We were all frozen. None of us were prepared on any level to navigate that situation. And on the drive to that funeral, I got a call. I was getting phone calls back to back to back to back. And I answered one. And it was a woman that I knew, had known for years from People Magazine. And she said, I am so sorry about his passing, you know, and I'm just avoiding saying his name. I said, thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm just like heartbroken. I'm devastated. I'm completely in shock. We're on our way to the funeral right now. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry this is going through. I want to help you. Let me know what the statement is. And it dawned on me that she was looking for a scoop, that she wanted the story. And I said something and she ran it. And the fact that I even said something infuriated so many people in the community. And I was like, please remove my name from that. And it took her three days to do it. And all these other outlets already picked up the statement. And it was just a horrible disaster of chaos. And I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't care if I'm going to be broke. I'm going to go do the spiritual center thing. I'm going to only do yoga and meditation. I'm not perpetuating and popularizing any of this anymore. I'm going to help people heal from this. <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And the biggest tool and the biggest gift I had in that moment that gave me the energy I needed to heal through that process and make my life transition, it looks on the surface like a professional transition, but really it's a complete life redirection, was I called Marianne Williamson, who I had already developed a relationship with and already knew. And I told her what happened and she actually knew him because he had hosted fundraisers for her campaign. So, she had already met him and already knew this person who died. And she said a prayer for me and she said, look, you've got to call David Kessler. David Kessler coined the five stages of grief with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in his book on grief and grieving. He is like the world's foremost expert on grief. He recently came out with a book called Finding Meaning, the sixth stage of grief, you know? And she was like, you've got to talk to him. And I was like, great, thank you. And then of course, I didn't. She did an email intro. And of course, I did not respond to it. (laughs) And that was the pivotal turning point. That was the major unraveling of my career in entertainment industry and basically never going back. Did you have money saved up? (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Not a single penny.
0: This spiritual center, full circle, 7,000 square feet, ragtag team of people running it, very little money coming in, always behind in the rent, day late, dollar short. How did that seem like a viable option for you at that time?
1: For the first time in a long time, it was not about money. Mm. For the first time in a long time, it was about survival. I had already had to navigate my own suicidal ideation. And I had already had to convince myself to survive. And then watching one of my friends not be able to make it. One Mm -hmm. of my friends not being able to make it. And feeling complicit to some extent, right? Absolutely. You know, because I was the one who was there getting magazines to take pictures of his million dollar collection of cars. I was the one taking him to all these red carpet events where we were feeling inadequate. I was totally part of this vortex of energy that was creating and exacerbating all of these dysfunctional lifestyle patterns Hmm. in his reality. So, no, it was not a viable financial decision. It really caused me to be in a challenging place financially, but I was trying to survive. And for the first time, survival was not make money to survive. This was have the will in my heart to keep going another day.
0: I wrote something and sent it out earlier today and it was talking about how in order to see the next step you have to completely let go of your attachment to whatever is clearly not working based on how you feel inside. And you're not going to be able to see the path until you completely let go. And hearing this moment in your life, when you finally let go of the PR thing, what did you see? I saw for yourself, what was the path that you saw for yourself?
1: All I knew was that God was real. Mm -mm. And, That I was starting to get a glimpse of spiritual maturity by having to go through actual hard things. And I did not see a clear path. I didn't see light at the end of the tunnel. All Mm -hmm. I knew was that I was in a tunnel and that there was a way to walk. And I just hoped I was walking in the right direction. I stopped drinking. I was really fortunate to never have like a very serious actual drinking problem, but I just was like, okay, that's not part of my life. And I started to be of service. The spiritual center, like you're saying, it cost us money. We made no money there. It cost a lot of energy and anguish and love and money. (laughs) And I just put everything into it. And I basically moved in. I basically lived there. I was there every single day. I was there for every single event. I was there... To help, we did everything we could to serve the unhoused population in the area, people who were going through heartbreak and pain. I did my best to be there for them. I ended up eventually reconnecting with David Kessler, who Marianne introduced me to, and I, and I did his grief counselor training, and I did a number of other grief counselor trainings. I spent a lot of time at Deer Park Monastery, Thich Nhat Han Zen Monastery in Southern California. I took refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so I had an entire period of my life where I was officially a Zen Buddhist, and that was deeply healing. I met a few people and created and co-created and consulted in the opening of over 12 meditation centers. It was like 13, 14 meditation centers in Los Angeles. And I taught at a bunch of them, taught everywhere. And anyone who teaches meditation knows that, especially as you're starting, you're not exactly making tons of money. It's not the profession um,
0: for getting (laughs) rich.
1: Yeah. People who want to make a lot of money, like sometimes they look at the price tags for like teaching meditation and they're like, that's a lot. You probably make a lot of money. It's like, "Mm, you have to teach a lot of people to make a lot of money. And so, yeah, it was a really challenging time financially, but it was deeply healing Mm -hmm. and deeply rewarding. I also became vegan and Mm -hmm. for a while I was raw vegan. And yeah, I mean, I just immersed myself in study, service, and practice. And that's what I'm referring to as your path, right? Like you couldn't right. see
0: it necessarily, but you knew that being on the red carpet was chipping away at your soul, as you said. Right. And that feeling of contracting and the stomach churning and all, it just didn't feel, it felt the opposite of healing. And so right. now you're on this new path and you're just doing whatever you feel curious about that is leading to healing. That's making you feel that spark inside. And and so, little by little, bit by bit, things are kind of working out for you. You're making yourself available for service. You're helping out Marianne Williamson. You're volunteering at some of these places. And now that leads you to starting to publish
1: books. Right. You know, I started to use some of my PR skills to consult for all of these different centers. Uh, Some of them I actually Made money consulting for some of them I kind of dish out some pre consulting a lot of free consulting, and some classes where look sometimes I was getting paid zero dollars to teach these classes, you know, and other times I was getting paid thirty five dollars you know it was like really like pennies, and little by little before I knew it, I had taught thousands of people to meditate, mm-hmm. you know, and before I knew it. I was teaching celebrities to meditate. Before I knew it, I was like leading meditations for like Elon Musk and for major executives and major corporations. And and it did come through very, very organically from really from doing 20 classes a week that I was, I was like spending more money getting there to the classes than I was making in the classes. And well, it was- that
0: combined with you think like a PR person, like you can't not see things from a... Pre our perspective, and that's what meditation studios and teachers are notoriously horrible at: is marketing right. themselves. You go to their websites; it's like these old MySpace age websites in <laughs> 2015 uh, and 16. And you're coming in yeah. like this fresh, young perspective. You know how to like get eyeballs on your stuff.
1: Yeah, And the only photos I even had were like these like sexy modeling photos. I like didn't even have like I didn't even have like soft, relatable meditation, yoga, photos at all. I just didn't even have them. And so, it was like a lot of GQ energy. And so, yeah, it did stir up a lot of things. And when you're teaching everywhere, and when you're one of the first teachers at all these different places, and you're kind of willing to do it for nothing, you end up getting quite a few audiences, especially you're willing to do it for two people. Before you know it, it's not two people in the room anymore. It's 60 people in the room. And having our own amazing venue full circle in Venice on Rose Avenue in this gorgeous building that was a Hare Krishna temple that had this building had its own reputation with amazing people like Andrew Keegan, who brought a lot of energy into that, you know, ragtag team of co-creators, you know, and then people like you coming in, we attracted, you know, we had Marianne Williamson there. We had Light Watkins there. We had all kinds of amazing people come in. David Data taught there. Graham Hancock taught there. Nako Bear performed there. We ended up attracting a lot of interesting things. And through all those relationships, before you know it, me and my boyfriend at the time were in Egypt for my 30th birthday. So, you know, fast forward, 21st birthday to 30th, you know, nine years later. I'm in Egypt. We do this whole ritual. I have this vision inside the pyramid at midnight under the full moon on my 30th birthday. It's like a whole vision. And then the next day, I got an email that said meditation book deal offer as the subject line. Hmm. And I was like, that looks like a scam. And I open it and I'm like, where's the scam? I'm like, okay, I'm being scammed. I'm like, and I decide to go ahead and take a call with these people who are going to try to charge me $50,000 to self-publish a book or whatever, you know, and they don't say anything about me having to pay for anything. And I'm like, this is like kind of taking a while for them to get to the punchline and ask for my credit card number. (laughs) And, um, and I'm like fully like in disbelief that it's a real deal. They send me over an offer and I'm looking at it and I'm like disoriented. I'm like confused. I send it to one of the monks that was my mentor at the Deer Park Monastery. I send it to one of the monks that was my mentor at Self-Realization Fellowship. I send it to Marianne Williamson. I send it to Michael Beckwith. I send it to like all my little team of supporters. And I was like, what do you think I should do about this? And they're like, congratulations, you got a book deal. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no, there's something weird about it. And I'll never forget Marianne Williamson said to me, darling, we talked on the phone about it. I said, there's something weird about it. You know, she was like, darling, you know what we used to call this? And I was like, it's a scam, right? I'm being conned. It's like a con game. I'm being conned. And she was like, no, we used to call this being discovered. Someone discovered you. So just embrace this opportunity. Do a great job on it. I'll support Mm -hmm. you in it. Before I know it, I've got a book out with Marianne Williamson's endorsement, and Sharon Salzberg's endorsement, and Deer Park Monastery getting behind it, and Self-Realization Fellowship. I'm the only book not published by the Self-Realization Fellowship sold in the Self-Realization Fellowship bookshop. Wow. And so, you know, like before I know it, it just like happened. And then before I knew it, it sold 25,000 copies and then 35,000 and then 45,000. And then it's in Russian and Portuguese and French and Chinese. And, you know, it's like it just sort of took on a life of its own. It didn't become a New York Times bestseller. It wasn't exactly like the top publisher in the world. You know, there's all kinds of things if I, from a PR perspective, the PR brain could critique it and diminish it and everything, but from my truth and my authenticity, this was never a career. This is what saved my life. Teaching meditation saved my life. Practicing Mm -hmm. it, yes, but sharing it with other people was how I filled my days and how I survived the darkest time in my life.
0: And that's practical meditation for beginners.
1: Right. My first book is Practical Meditation for Beginners. And what I did that a lot of people liked, but also the traditional meditation community criticizes me about regularly, is that I present 10 different meditation techniques. Hmm. And so, actually, funny story. I've been to Vipassana, Gwenka Vipassana centers for the 10-day silent retreats eight times. I've been to eight 10-day retreats. But when that book came out, they banned me from them.
0: Really? Because, because you are, are other... bastardizing the, the purity of the tradition.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. Because there are other techniques. They said, if you officially completely stop teaching all other techniques other than Vipassana, then you can come back. Hmm. And the thing is, I was also a TM practitioner and am now a Chopra Center certified primordial sound meditation teacher. I never did any certifications with the Knowles family, but through the Veda Center, I loved their work and followed Charlie and Tom Knowles' work. And I was like a huge Light Watkins fan. And so, I was like, am I really going to completely renounce this entire mantra practice, which for some people, that is the most effective resonant technique. And so, in the book, Practical Meditation for Beginners, I teach open awareness, Vipassana-based Meditation, I also present mantra-based techniques. I also present the techniques that I learned at Deer Park Monastery, which is mindful eating, mindful walking, body scan, and loving kindness. I also teach things that I that I actually learned through programs at UCLA, which is sitting with difficult emotions and observing emotions. It couldn't be authentic for me to just renounce all that I had learned in favor of one lineage Which has been problematic. It's like you no longer have the support of the lineage when that's how you're doing it. Someone from a major, I'll just be fully transparent, someone from Chopra Center once told me that the reason the Chopra Center hasn't had me involved in any kind of teaching public facing with them is because one of my books is Mm Bible-based. And she said, you have this whole Christian thing going on and that's why they hadn't invited me. But that's an authentic part of my lineage also. So, my, my second book is actually a Christian book. I kind of wrote it for my family, I guess you could say.
0: Well, that's what I admire about your work is that you have to really be a proper teacher. You have to step into your own thing, right? Just like the guy who, would you say, translated or channeled the Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints knowledge. I mean, if you you trace Mm -hmm. back every tradition, there's going to be one guy or a girl, woman who channeled something or cognized something like they didn't get it from anywhere. They just had to kind of create it for themselves. And you put yourself on this sort of collaborative religious spiritual study journey, which I feel like has culminated in these four books. And most recently in modern spirituality, which is also, it's a book and a podcast. So, Talk a little bit about what you mean by modern spirituality and what is the opposite of modern spirituality?
1: Well, the opposite of modern spirituality is the literalistic relationship, the dogmatic relationship to religious tradition. Mm -hmm. So, modern spirituality is about direct experience of one's own higher nature, and it's a de emphasis on the rituals or the studies that get you there, and it's a re-emphasis on the experience itself. So, modern spirituality is based on the premise that this is now a global society in a way that it has never been before. And in order to have a global perspective, we have to have a deep respect for other cultures. So, just as we have to have interracial respect, we have to have intercultural respect, and just like we have to have intercultural respect, we have to have interfaith respect. Mm-hmm. And so, respect isn't, I respect your choice to be that religion, which is the wrong religion, but I'm going to choose to have <laughs> You're going to go it. to hell, but... <laughs> and I believe yeah. you're going to hell, but I respect your choice to go to hell. You know, n- that's not respect. That's not authentic. That's not spiritual. That is the human lower nature problem with the spiritual lineages and spiritual traditions you know mm-hmm. the idea of comparative religion versus collaborative religion comparative religion is an emphasis on sort of like a precise academic study of well this tradition does this ritual like this this tradition does this ritual like that here's where they're different collaborative religious studies came through my desire to identify the ways that we agree for the benefit of the whole. So, Mm -hmm. what are the things that the people of all the different faiths can agree on? Because that's the foundation upon which the new era of peace will be established. So, we're not going to establish a peaceful world without wars and without chaos and without race-based violence and without prejudices. We're not going to establish that world from identifying the ways that we're different. We can celebrate the ways that we're different, but we don't have to sit here and say, ah, see, the thing is you believe this and therefore you're wrong because the truth is actually this. There's an entire set of details. They say like the devil's in the details. And there's all these little details that start to make us feel more and more different, more and more separate. And the idea with modern spirituality is dropping the mental idea of it all. And softening into the actual heart centered experience of it and recognizing the areas of harmony amongst the ancient lineages. Who was the avatar you had in mind when you were writing this book? What type of person? That's an interesting one. You know, I think to pick up a book called Modern Spirituality, you are very likely already having an intuitive appreciation for more than one religion and more than one tradition. So I think what I tried to do with all four of my books is it's almost like a script. We find that people start to quote books and they quote teachers and they quote people. And so then they start to use those words like they're their own. I hear people basically quoting Marianne Williamson all the time. They think it came from their own mind. It's deepened so much. I in do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's become our own. It's because we believe it now. It's because we forgot its source because we've become it. And what my intention was with all four of my books, and especially modern spirituality, was to establish a dialogue and a language and almost like a script around what a lot of people might be feeling intuitively. So if if someone was maybe raised in one religion, but they didn't feel like that religion totally fulfilled them spiritually, or if someone found themselves attractive to multiple different traditions... I wanted to create a script where no matter where you stood on that spectrum, no matter where you came from and where you're going, we could have a meeting ground. Like that Rumi quote, in the space between right and wrong, there is a field, I will meet you there. And I wanted to sort of channel, so to speak, for our generation, a very pragmatic dialogue around the interfaith movement.
0: Well, I feel like that's almost exactly what Ramdas also represented. So you're in good company. This sort of spiritual eclectic right. approach. How are you thinking about
1: success these days? What does that mean to that's you? That's such a tricky one. It's like so much. Like you know, you've got a podcast. I've got a podcast. My producers are giving me these like reports on downloads and on traffic. And now they're like analyzing my social media and my plays and likes and engagement are all being analyzed, which feels so uncomfortable and and makes me feel like super exposed. And like my newsletter numbers and my book sales numbers. I used to just like watching my book sales numbers because it was like, oh, great. That one's doing well. That one's kind of not. Okay, what can I do? (laughs) And as a writer, as a creative, the exciting part is writing the book. It's like painting the painting, sculpting the sculpture. The exciting part's not marketing the sculpture or marketing the painting or marketing <laughs> the book. That's like the least fun part. So I'm feeling less and less enchanted by engagement and by downloads and by sales. And I've been like working with my agent to get a new, do we have the same agent? I think we do. Who's that? Colleen. Colleen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought that, yeah, I've been like talking to her about this next book, book number five that I'm writing. And it's like, I just am not turned on by having to like increase my numbers in order to be able to write another book. It's like,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. what? You know, so success, I'm in a really interesting place in this moment where, look, we're in a world where there are people that will not be receptive to my message. We're in a world where there's actual proactive wars. And in order for there to be wars, there's need to be people who are signing up for the military. There need to be people who are supporting these officials that are contributing to these policies. And it's an entire, very entrenched, very complicated reality. And because that exists in the world, it's clear that I may not exactly be someone that will sell hundreds of millions of copies of the books that I'm writing. And I'm in a place of sort of allowing that to dawn on me. I've, I've had success and I continue to be successful from the normal world standards where like financially uncomfortable and, and the sales continue and the podcast is successful and all of that, like people are listening to it and people are engaging and people are agreeing to be the guests on it and all of those things by the normal world standards. But in my heart, I'm in a transition point, and it's a different kind of transition point than I shared when my friend died and I made a full career pivot. But I recently tried to go to the Vipassana Center in Bali to seek that 10 days of silence, and they once again rejected me. There's like a photocopied next to the door with people's
0: faces on it. You're one of those
1: people. Do not let this guy in here. They're like, don't let him in. He's going (laughs) to silently repeat a mantra in his mind next to us. And we're going to hear him psychically. And it's like very serious, you know, and I, I respect that. But also as a person in this world, I don't know if that's what the world needs more of. People being rejected from meditation places because they meditate in other ways. It's like, is that what the Buddha wanted? I don't know him, but something tells me that ain't the vibe. Something mm. tells me that's not what he was really visioning for his lineage to be right. engaging with the world in that way, you know. So I'm really in a place of, even though on one level I'm I'm very external with the increase of energy around the podcast. And I've been doing a lot of media and publicity and everything lately, but what I'm really feeling now, I feel what is success for me, right? The second is I can tell that there is a new layer to go through, a new depth for me to saturate. There's things about me that I need to learn with all of what's come up the last few years around race in the collective as a white person. I had this whole ayahuasca ceremony where the ayahuasca took me to whiteness anonymous meetings. And it like took me through the 12 steps of, Unconscious racial bias and the acceptance of privilege and the inheritance of of racial karma. And there's just like so much to just be with. And I think that success for me is the ability to be in my creative place and in my spiritual practice in a way that's not judged based on evaluation. I want to be able to paint and write poetry and write songs and sing and write a book, not based on whether I have enough engagement for Random House to want to buy the book. And Mm -hmm. I'm just feeling, especially in this time of war, where it's like, I want to create something from my heart that feels authentic and feels real and feels beautiful. And I I don't want to be afraid to confront my demons. I want to like channel Buffy. I want to like take on the demons head on. I want to like take Mm -hmm. them out. I want to like, excavate my my inner world and confront the shadow and bring the light into the dark places and what that looks like is really a simple life more of a personal life with deeper more intimate relationships and less about large audiences and and book sales and things like that
0: i love it i think that's the final stage of enlightenment right there so <laughs> that's
1: a good place <laughs> i think all i know is that i don't have it all mm-hmm. i know is that i'm not enlightened I want to love more deeply. I want to help more authentically. And I don't want to have to perform. I don't want to have to put on a show. I don't want to have to over edit, but I also don't want to harm through my ignorance. I think editing ourselves, we're like, be authentic. And it's like, yeah, but bitch, sometimes your authentic self is ignorant. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that. I don't want to Mm -hmm. be ignorant anymore. And I don't want my authentic self to express out into the world and spew and proliferate wrong thinking. Mm -hmm. So, I'm kind of like, maybe I don't need to write another book right now. Maybe I need to sit down and shut up. I might learn something. So, I'm kind of like in a place where I don't want to be like self-deprecating and too hard on myself. But I also feel like, wow, dude, the world has major problems. Take a breath. Let's see what can come through a a deeper sense of recalibration and healing. Beautiful. Well,
0: look, man, one of the things that I get great joy out of in these conversations is just, you know, it's like in the beginning of the conversation, there's all these Legos, all these pieces of the story. You don't quite know how it's going to all connect, but then to see it all just kind of come together by the end and how you basically use everything that you experience and been exposed to in your passion and your mission and your calling. And it's just, it's really beautiful because it's a mixture of some of the curiosity, some of the really traumatic stuff, some of the kind of mundane, bland stuff, right? But any moment, any life experience can kind of trigger or inspire some new direction that pieces one of those Legos to another one. And then next thing you know, you pan back and you're like, oh my God, this was a masterpiece. And you're still really young, you know? So, you got a lot more to share, a lot more writing to do. And so, yeah, I just want to acknowledge you, man, for making those pivots and for showing up and for being so vulnerable in this conversation. I think it's going to help a lot of people. It's going to inspire a lot of people to take their own leap of faith, their version of of
1: that and their story. Yeah, thank you so much. And, And I think it's through people like you, those consistent relationships where we're not all up in each other's business on a regular basis, but just knowing that you're there and experiencing Mm -hmm. like the parallel of you making your pivots, you deepening your practice and everything. I think that it's the Sangha. It's Sangha. It's having the relatedness and the spiritual reflection. So if I can contribute that in any way, happy to. Well, I'm looking forward to sharing on your podcast, man. So, you know, yeah, I can't wait to to flip the script and, (laughs) you know, I know I I was a, I was, uh, I was holding back asking you questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm mm-hmm. excited to flip the script and and yeah, and yeah go deeper into, into your journey on my podcast very soon.
0: Cool, brother. Yeah. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Looking forward to crossing paths some point soon. I'm still planning on getting out to Bali at some point. So maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, I'm here. I'm ready when you are. Thank you for tuning into my interview with Ben Decker. Make sure to follow Ben on social media. He is at Benjamin W. Decker. So at B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-W-D-E-C-K-E-R. And I was actually featured on his Modern Spirituality podcast, so you can check that out. All of Ben's books, including Modern Spirituality, are available everywhere that books are sold. We'll of course put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, if you enjoyed Ben's story, you can look for similar stories at lightwatkins.com show. You'll see a drop down menu at the top of the screen where you can search past episodes by subject matter. So if you want to hear more stories about people who've taken a leap of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges, you can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. Oh, and by the way, did you know that you can watch these podcast interviews on YouTube? Because I know for me, sometimes it's nice to put a face to a story. So just keep that in mind in case you're the same. I post every podcast episode on my YouTube channel, which you can find by just searching Light Watkins Podcast. And I also post the raw, unedited versions of each podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that likes hearing all the mistakes the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode. Then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. There's a lot more to thehappinessinsiders.com. You'll also have access to my 108 day meditation challenge, my seven day meditation kickstart, there's a 108 day movement challenge, a bunch of master classes, and other challenges. Also, if you feel inspired by these stories and you want to make sure that this podcast continues to thrive, the best way to support that mission is to leave a rating or a review, which you can do really quickly by just glancing down at your phone screen and on the Apple podcast app, go to the name of the podcast, click on it. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see five blank stars. Just tap the star all the way on the right, and you've left me a five-star rating. If you want to go the extra mile and leave a review, I would appreciate that as well. Thank you for that. And otherwise, I will look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart. And keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.